The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord, our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Okay, I can't put that away. We've got a sermon to do. We're going to be in Numbers chapter 10 today again, and we're going to finish this chapter, which is verses 11 through 36. It's a lot of verses. Don't worry. It'll go really quickly. It's entitled, From Sinai to Paran. Okay, Numbers 10, verse 11. Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month, in the second year, that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. The standard of the camp of the children of Judah set out first according to their armies. Over their army was Nashon, the son of Amminadab. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Issachar was Nathanel, the son of Zuar. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Halon. Then the tabernacle was taken down, and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari set out, carrying the tabernacle. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set out according to their armies. Over their army was Elitzer, the son of Shedeur. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Simeon was Shulumiel, the son of Zurashadai. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Gad was Eliasaph, the son of Deuel. Then the Kohathites set out, carrying the holy things. The tabernacle would be prepared for their arrival. And the standard of the camp of the children of Ephraim set out according to their armies. Over their army was Elishama, the son of Amihud. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Padazur. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Benjamin was Abidan, the son of Gideoni. Then the standard of the camp of the children of Dan, the rear guard of all the camps, set out according to their armies. Over their army was Ahietzer, the son of Amishadai. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Asher was Pagiel, the son of Okran. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Anan. Thus was the order of march of the children of Israel according to their armies when they began their journey. Now, Moses said to Hovab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. And he said to him, I will not go, but I will depart to my own land and to my relatives. 
So Moses said, Please do not leave, inasmuch as you know how we are to camp in the wilderness, and you can be our eyes. And it shall be, if you go with us, indeed it shall be, that whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day when they went out from the camp. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. All right. What kind of a guide are you? There are people that need to be led and there is a place that they need to be led to. Today's passage is a curious one when you first read it. The people are said to have started out on the journey from Sinai to Paran. There is then a sudden, even abrupt introduction of someone named Hobab. It is a name never mentioned before in scripture and which will only be mentioned one more time, which is in Judges 4 verse 11. After a short conversation with him, the story reverts back to say that the people departed the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. It is apparent that the Lord put this person, Hobab, in here for a reason. Moses asks him to be their eyes on the journey. Some people are just blind. They may have the path right in front of them, and they may even have the evidence of the Lord in all of his splendor directly in front of their faces, and yet they cannot find their way. How do we know this is correct? Paul says as much in Romans chapter 9 with these words. He said, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. People know the truth of God, but they can't seem to find their way to following him. This is how Israel was, apparently. Moses knew it. The Lord is there in the pillar, and the ark is going before them, and yet Moses asks for a guide for the people. So let me ask again, what kind of guide are you? The Lord does his part in the equation, making himself painfully evident to the people of the world. And yet, it still takes us doing our part to lead people on the proper path and to conduct our affairs in the right way in his presence. Think about it. How many denominations in Christianity alone are there? Well, depending on who is counting, the number goes from 1,100 all the way up to 43,000. Surely they can't all be right. After that, we could count the number of other religions in the world who are certainly not right, but there is no point. In the end, there is a path which needs to be taken, and there needs to be people to be eyes for those who are too blind to find it on their own or to know what to do once the path is found. Our text verse comes from Isaiah 10. It is verse 20. I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Somehow, there are those who don't seek the Lord, and yet they find him. And yet Israel, supposedly seeking the Lord, completely missed him. How did that happen? I mean, like Israel in the wilderness, the Lord was right there in front of them. And yet they needed a guide along the way. And then when Jesus came, he stood right there in front of them. There he stood in all of his glory and his splendor, and they missed him. What they need is a guide to lead them back to him. And guess what? That ain't going to happen all by itself. They are not seeking him now, and the only way they will find him is if we open our mouths and speak. 
And this isn't just true with the Jews. It is true with people who sit in churches every single week of their lives. And yet they are no closer to finding that path than a blind man is. Without someone leading them to it, they will never find it. But it needs to be someone who already knows the way. Hobab has been asked to assist Israel. The account today doesn't say if he accepted the invitation or not. Did he? Well, let's go through the verses and find out what we can. And you, will you not just sit there in your chair once a week feeling satisfied that you know the path? Will you please respond to the call to be the guide the Lord intends you to be? The path is there. You know what it is, where it is, and what it takes to get on it. So please do what you're called to do. That is, of course, after you've heard today's sermon. You've already started, and so you might as well stick that out. It's a marvelous part of his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Now, speaking about leading people, and before I get into the sermon itself, I was stamping tracks last night. I thought I had ran out of them, and I looked under there last Thursday, and lo and behold, there's a whole box that Paul had ordered before he died. And so I was stamping them at the dinner table during dinner, and probably annoying Hedico, I did that for two days. And there are Christmas tracks back there, so you have no reason to not lead people on the path. Okay, there's my plug for evangelism for the day. Our first thought is the day of departure, verses 11 through 28. Verse 11, now it came to pass, vehi, and it came to pass. It is a very common expression in the Hebrew used well over 750 times. And yet, this instance bears an excitement and a wonder that is almost palpable. Something marvelous is about to be described and which will lead the people of Israel into the second major section of the book of Numbers. The first section was a wilderness section found in the wilderness of Sinai. That went from verse 1-1 to verse 10-10. The next section is what we might term a road trip. It's a time of travel going from verse 10-11 to verse 12-16. It covers the travel between Sinai and the next wilderness section, which is found in the wilderness of Paran. Verse 11 going on, on the 20th day of the second month in the second year. A review of several dates needs to be made in order to understand the significance of this date now provided. First, Exodus 12 verse 40 established the time of the Exodus as the year 2514 Anno Mundi, meaning from the creation of the world. From there, Israel had a 45-day journey to reach Mount Sinai, where the Israelites worked to erect the sanctuary. In Exodus 40, verse 17, it stated, And it came to pass in the first month of the second year on the first day of that month that the tabernacle was raised up. The date now in Numbers is 50 days later. It has been 395 days since the Exodus, which is one year, one month, and five days, and it is 350 days since their arrival in Sinai, as recorded in Exodus 19, verse 1. I go by the biblical calendar. All right, it's called the redemptive calendar, which a year always equals 360 days. So keep that in mind. All right, this is just 10 days short of one year right now. It is still the year 2515 Anno Mundi. The Lord is being extremely precise in these dates. The second Passover has been observed, and the details concerning the silver trumpets, which we saw last week, are the last item that were recorded to date. There is a reason why this was so. They are about to be used for their intended purpose. Verse 11 continues that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. 
The sign of Israel's time of departure has come. As it said in Numbers verse 917, whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after that the children of Israel would journey, and in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. But what significance is this day? Sergio, while reading Numbers just a couple months ago, emailed with a marvelous pattern. Because the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month, and it is now the 20th day of the second month, that means that it matches the Jubilee pattern which we read about back in the book of Leviticus. It was set up and rested 49 days, and it was then set for departure on the 50th day. There is a sense of jubilee or release from the labors of Sinai after the erection of the tabernacle. What is also rather amazing based on this verse is that it is from this day until Israel crosses the Jordan into Canaan, it will be exactly 14,000 days. From this day to the day they cross over the Jordan, it will be to the day 14,000 days by the biblical calendar. Now, how do I know that? I'm going to stop and I'm going to tell you a story. Back in 2005, I had met the Lord in 2001 and I was all excited about the rapture happening and I thought, you know, maybe the Lord's told us when the rapture is going to happen. And so there was a pattern that I had heard about that there was going to be from the recapture of Jerusalem in 1967, June 6, 1967, there was going to be an uh, eclipse of the moon on 5 October of 2005. And I thought, I wonder what that means. So I put it in timeanddate.com and it says it is exactly 14,000 days. Exactly. And I thought, well, that's odd. That, that can't be by coincidence, right? And so what did I do? I said, if this is a pattern and there's really something going to happen on 5 October of 2005, guess what? It'll be in the Bible because there's nothing in the Bible that doesn't have a precedent, which is going to be reflected in whatever we're looking for, okay? And so I started looking every date in the books of Moses. And guess what? I figured out that it's 14,000 days to the day from the date that they left Sinai to the date that they crossed over the Jordan. It matched what I was thinking. Well, guess what? It didn't happen. Hedico knew. I talked about this for weeks in advance of it happening. You know what? We got this pattern. And the funny thing is, I was looking for that pattern before I found it. In other words, I had something in my head that said there's 14,000 days. It'll be in the Bible. And sure enough, there it is in the Bible. And now rabbis use that date in Israel. I read a commentary and they were using my calculation on that. But I was wrong about the rapture. And so I never again have speculated about the rapture. Do not do that. It is not sound theology. But I want you to know that just because something looks convincing, you hear people post stuff all the time. Well, this is convincing. The rapture is going to happen. It ain't going to happen on that day. It'll happen any other day, but it ain't going to happen on that day. And I learned my lesson, and I no longer get into that type of stuff. But that pattern was there for a reason. The Lord led me to look for a pattern in our modern times so that I would look for a pattern in the Bible that I did found, and then I figured out why that pattern is there. We'll go on. That's recorded, the 14,000 days is recorded in Joshua 4, 19. Here's what it says. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. That was the 10th day of the first month of the 41st year. Subtracting one from the other, the count is exactly 14,000 days. More interestingly is the pattern which is seen which follows this, and it is not the rapture of the church in October of 2005. All right? Christ was hailed by Israel as their king on 6 April AD 32. Sir Robert Anderson figured that out using the star charts at the Royal Observatory back in the 1800s. They rejected him, and exactly 
14,000 days later, on 5 August of AD 70, according to the star charts at the Royal Observatory, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. That's the pattern the Lord wanted us to find right there. The people were scattered after that. The people saw the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai, and yet they disbelieved. That'll be seen in Numbers chapter 14. And because of that, they were punished. The people saw the glory of Jesus Christ, and they disbelieved. And they were again punished. It is a pattern which bears the divine mark of God's work in redemptive history, verifying that Christ Jesus is Jehovah incarnate. For now in Numbers, though, it is time for Israel to begin its trek to the land of promise, as is seen in the next words. Verse 12, And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys. Israel is set out, as it says, from the wilderness of Sinai. Sinai means bush of the thorn. Israel has, during all of this time, revealed the glory of the Lord in type and shadow. Does anybody remember any of the thousands of types and shadows in the past since Exodus' arrival, Leviticus, and now in Numbers? Thousands of them. This is what they have been doing. They've been revealing the Lord in type and shadow. The name Sinai has been used to anticipate the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, where he would bear the crown of thorns. It is the ultimate picture of everything seen over these past days and months. From there, Israel would trek to another wilderness. Next named, verse 12 continues, Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. The cloud went until it arrived in Israel's next place of rest, the wilderness of Paran. However, Paran is not the first stop, but the third the words here summarize the trip from its beginning to its end. How do we know that? You go to the book of, uh, later in the book of Numbers and it tells all of the stops. It wasn't the actual first stop. It was, those were just temporary stops on the way to Paran. Paran comes from the same root as Porah, meaning a branch. But the idea from which it comes is that of ornamentation that is found in the root of both words. Paar, signifying to beautify or to glorify. Abarim defines the name then, not on it being a place of abundant foliage, but in the sense of glory, because it is there in that area that the Lord had deposited his covenant law. From there, they make the obvious connection that the next time this occurred was when he once again deposited a new covenant in human form in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, here we are being given a picture in Israel's first move from Sinai the cross of Christ as the fulfillment of the law to Paran, the new covenant in Christ where he rules from heaven. One precedes the other and one leads to the next. This is why John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It was only after the cross and resurrection that they realized the true glory of Christ. It is only after Sinai that Israel goes to Paran, or glorious. Israel's very movements are being used to show what God would do and reveal in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, so they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. The trek now beginning is described in Deuteronomy 1 verse 19. There it says, So we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites. In Deuteronomy 1, it calls the mountain Horeb, not Sinai. I was talking to Mabel about this before we started today. When God uses a name, 
He uses it for a specific reason. Sinai means one thing, Horeb means another, but he used the different names to speak of the same occurrence from Numbers to Deuteronomy. Why? Wait until we get to Deuteronomy. The terrible nature of the wilderness is seen in the verses ahead as they progress. For now, the departure is said to be Alpi Yehovah Beyad Moshe, or according to the mouth of Yehovah by the hand of Moses. This movement is now described by the order of precedence of arrangement around the tabernacle, which has already been detailed, but which is now explained in order of departure. Verse 14, the standard of the camp of the children of Judah set out first according to their armies. Over their army was Nashon, the son of Amminadav. As we saw in the previous sermons, Judah, or praise, goes first before the Lord. It is the tribe from which Jesus descends and the tribe from which we derive the term Jew today. They are the tribe which was situated furthest east and they are first to depart. Nashon means enchanter or serpent person. Aminadav means my kinsman is noble or people of the prince. Along with Judah, marching under their standard and yet individual armies are two other tribes to depart with them. First is verse 15, over the army of the tribe of the children of Issachar was Nathanael, the son of Zuar. Second to travel is Issachar, or he is wages. Nathanael means given of God. Zuar means little one. Next is verse 16, and over the army of the tribe of the children of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Halon. Third to travel is Zebulun, or glorious dwelling place. Eliab means my God is Father, Halon means very strong. Next is verse 17, then the tabernacle was taken down. After the tribes to the east had begun their march, the tabernacle itself is taken down. It would follow immediately after this first set of armies under Judah's standard. Verse 17 continues, and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari set out carrying the tabernacle. Gershon means exiled one. Merari means my bitterness. I'm just reading these to you so you remember the past sermons where every one of these names had meaning. They formed beautiful patterns if you remember those sermons. Verse 18, And the standard of the camp of Reuben set out according to their armies. Over their army was Elitzur, the son of Shedeur. After the tabernacle, the tribes from the south side were next to break down and depart. They fall under the main standard of Reuben, meaning see a son. Elitzer means God of the rock. Shedeor means spreader of light. Verse 19, over the army of the tribe of the children of Simeon was Shulumiel, the son of Zur Shaddai. Simeon means he who hears. Shulumiel means peace of God. Zur Shaddai means rock of the almighty. Verse 20, and over the army of the tribe of the children of Gad was Eliasaf, the son of Deuel. Gad means good fortune. Eliasaf means God has added. Deuel means known of God. Verse 21, then the Kohathites set out carrying the holy things. The tabernacle would be prepared for their arrival. Kohath means obedience or congregation. It is this family of Levi who is given the responsibility for Hamikdash or the holy things. The word literally signifies the sanctuary, but in this case, it is speaking of the things for which the sanctuary was constructed, meaning those items which were carried by man, not transported on wagons. They follow after Reuben because this would then allow time for those of Gershon and Merari to unload the wagons and have the tabernacle set up and ready for their arrival. They would march directly to it, place them where they were instructed, and then the priests would conduct the necessary tasks to have them ready for service. Interestingly, Reuben 
the second set of tribes to set out, follows the sanctuary, and behind him are the sacred things of the tabernacle. Thus his name, see, a son, is perfectly reflected in his position. Both to the front and to the rear of his standard are those things which picture the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Verse 22, And the standard of the camp of the children of Ephraim set out according to their armies. Over their army was Elishama, the son of Amihud. The tribes to the west of the sanctuary broke camp next, following those sacred objects carried by the Kohathites. Ephraim, or twice fruitful, is the main standard. Elishama means God is heard. Amihud means my kinsman is glorious. Next, and with him is, verse 23, over the army of the tribe of the children of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. The main meaning of Manasseh is to forget. Gamaliel means reward of God. Pedazur means the rock is ransomed. Verse 24, and over the army of the tribe of the children of Benjamin was Abidan, the son of Gideoni. Benjamin means son of the right hand. Abidan means father of judgment. Gideoni means feller, as in one who cuts down. Verse 25, then the standard of the camp of the children of Dan, the rear guard of all the camps set out according to their armies. Over their army was Ahietzer, the son of Amishadai. Taking up the rear of the entire procession would be the camps found on the north side of the sanctuary. Dan was the main standard of these armies. Dan means judge. Ahietzer means brother of help. Amishadai means my kinsman is the Almighty. Along with Dan were two tribes, starting with verse 26. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Asher was Pagiel, the son of Okran. Asher means happy. Pagiel means occurrence of God. Okran means troubled. Also, under the standard of Dan was, verse 27, and over the army of the tribe of the children of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Anan. Naphtali means my wrestling. Ahira means brother of purpose. Anan means having eyes. And verse 28, thus was the order of the march of the children of Israel according to their armies when they began their journey. The order is set, as it says, according to their armies. Taking the meaning of the names of the tribes, this is what we come up with. First is praise. It starts with Judah. Praise, he is wages, glorious dwelling place. And then the sanctuary goes out, which is carried by Gershon, meaning exiled one, and Merari, meaning my bitterness, that is on wagons. And then see a son is Reuben. And following him is he who hears in good fortune. And then you have the holy things, or actually we'd call them the most holy things. Kohath means congregation or obedience. And then you have twice fruitful to forget son of the right hand. And finally, judge happy and my wrestling. But if you take only the name of the main standards, not all the other ones, here's what we have. Praise. Praise always goes first before the Lord. We've seen that time and again. We're going to continue to see it in the book of Joshua. And then you have the sanctuary, which pictures Jesus Christ. And then the tribe that says, see, a son. And the rest of the sanctuary, which pictures Jesus Christ, his incarnation. So praise goes before the Lord. And then you have his incarnation. And then you have twice fruitful. Jew and Gentile being brought into the redemptive process, and then finally, judge. He is the judge of mankind. It's a snapshot of redemptive history under the four main standards. Marvelous stuff. We are on a trek to the promised land, setting out the Lord goes before us. We are safe when in him we make our stand, and so we shall faithfully follow the Lord Jesus. Though we are in a wilderness, we will surely be brought out. He will guide us every step of the way. In this walk, him we will bless and we shall never doubt. Our faith will remain strong day unto day. 
Our arrival is a sure guarantee, and so in our hearts we shall never doubt until we stand before him at the glassy sea, and there to him we shall joyfully shout. Now, just so you know, I didn't know about that pattern until I put it on the paper and I practiced the sermon, and Thursday I said, oh, we don't need all the extra names, we just need the four main banners. There it is. Wonderful stuff. Our second thought today, a beloved Gentile among Israel. It's verses 29 through 36. Verse 29, now Moses said to Hovav, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. Now, I'm going to say this again, and it's going to be a little confusing, so I'm going to say it right now. Father-in-law, the word is chatan. You're going to hear this, but I don't want you to overlook it while I'm just saying the sermon, okay? It means chatan is father-in-law, but it can also mean son-in-law. It can mean brother-in-law. And so different translations will translate it differently because they're trying to figure out what's going on with this person. Because we have somebody named Reuel, also somebody named Jethro, remember that? And then we have somebody named Hobab, and they say it's all the same person, or it might be a different person, or whatever. So I want you to understand, nobody is sure, but the Lord is choosing names, particular names, just like Sinai and Horeb, to make particular pictures. If you understand that, then it'll all be clearer to you. Verse 29, I'll read it again. Now Moses said to Hobab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. The account suddenly and without any explanation turns to this person, Hobab. He is one, the son of Reuel, two, the Midianite, and three, Moses Chatan, or father-in-law. Thus, he is the same person mentioned in Exodus 18, who is there called Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law. Or he is his son who accompanied Jethro. Either way, it was explained during that Exodus 18 sermon that the events recorded there, all the way back in Exodus 18, occurred between Numbers 10.10 and Numbers 10.11, just prior to the departure of Israel from Sinai. This now completes that account. The reason for its placement in Exodus was explained at that time. Hobab, or Chovav, means beloved. Reuel means friend of God. Midian means place of judgment. Verse 29 continues. We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. The words are spoken prior to the departure recorded in the previous verses. But the account is recorded now as a logical insert to show what occurred at the time of the call for departure. A decision had to be made concerning what Hobab wanted to do in relation to moving or not moving with Israel. In hopes of him coming along, we next read, verse 29 continues, Come with us, and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. It is obvious that Moses wanted him to join them on their trek to the promised land. As the Lord had promised good things to Israel, so he is asking Hobab to share in those same good things by joining them on their journeys and becoming a part of them. Verse 30, And he said to him, I will not go, but I will depart to my own land and to my relatives. It is a certainty that Jethro did return to his home. That is recorded in Exodus 18, verse 27. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. If Jethro is Hobab, then he departed according to his word here. If he is Jethro's son, being given the same title, then Moses is asking him to separate from his elderly father and his home people and to join the people of God on their trek to Canaan. The second option is possible, as we'll see in another two verses. Verse 31. So Moses said, please do not leave inasmuch as you know how we are to camp in the wilderness and you can be our eyes. Despite his adamant desire to return to his own land and his relatives, Moses again implores him to stay, explaining that he is knowledgeable concerning the land. 
the ways of the land and about how to interact with the land. The statement, and you can be our eyes, implies that they were blinded to the nature of the journey. They were incapable of seeing the avenues to easy travel and proper camping. They were unaware of the haunts of the enemies and how they would lay out ambushes and so on. To be their eyes, then, means that he would be the one to lead the blind on their journey. Does that sound like anything from the New Testament? Okay, let's go on. Out of this arises an obvious question, which Mabel walked up to me, how rude, right before we started the sermon. She asked this exact question. Why, if the Lord is leading Israel, would they need someone to tell them these things? And I said, you're getting ahead of yourself. You'll hear in a couple minutes. Good job, Mabel. I love inquisitive minds because I ask this every time I get to this passage. Every time I ask that. Well, I had to sit down and think it through because it's time to preach on it, right? The answer is the same found in the establishment and running of a church or a reliance on the success of a company started under the principles of the Lord or a marriage dedicated to the Lord and so on. The answer is, as Adam Clark plainly says it, man cannot do God's work and God will not do the work which he has qualified and commanded man to perform. There are things the Lord will do in leading his people, and there are things his people must do in following him. Moses, understanding this, continues, verse 32, And it shall be, if you go with us, indeed, it shall be that whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. The repetition of the word vehaya, or and it shall be, is a spoken stress of the guarantee of what is promised. Whatever good they receive from the Lord, it will be granted also to Hobab and his posterity. The words end the conversation, and nothing is recorded as to what his decision is. And so we can only guess based on the rest of the evidence found in Scripture. First, the descendants of this man are recorded as living in the land of Israel. That is seen in Judges 1, verse 16. Here's what it says. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, Chatan, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies near the south, near Arad, and they went and dwelt among the people. There he is called the Kenite, indicating the area in which he settled. He is again seen in Judges 4, verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite, of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Za'anaim, which is beside Kadesh. A likely reference to them is again made at the time of King Saul. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt." Because of these references, a couple options are possible. One, Jethro and Hobab are the same person, and after Jethro returned to his home, because we saw that in the Exodus verses, in Exodus 18, he later joined with Israel as their guide. Two, Jethro and Hobab are father and son. Jethro returned to Midian, but Hobab relented and joined Moses, maybe after taking his father home. The word chatan does not necessarily mean father-in-law, but an in-law of some sort. No matter, Hobab did join with Israel, but he never became a part of Israel, meaning a convert through circumcision of the flesh. He remained a Gentile. We know this because his descendants do come into Canaan, and their kindness to Israel was long remembered by the Israelites, and yet they remained Gentiles, receiving the same promises as Israel. Does anybody see anything going on there? 
for now, what is certain is that Israel departed Sinai as the Lord directed. Whenever he joined them, his descendants after him entered and remained in the land of Canaan. Verse 33, so they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. This is the actual departure which was first recorded and anticipated in verse 12. The intervening verses were placed where they are to dispose of the matter requesting Hobab join with Israel on their trek. With those verses complete, the actual movement of the departure for the people is recorded. Here, Sinai is called the mountain of the Lord. It is a term that will later be used by Isaiah to describe Jerusalem, where the temple of the Lord is and where Christ will sit in authority. In their first journey, they travel a distance requiring three days. The meaning is probably twofold. First, there would have been two periods of stopping the procession without setting the camp in its expected layout. Secondly, the entire journey is one trek, even if interrupted by periods of rest. From the time they left until the time they reached the first goal, it is but one journey. And we use exactly the same terminology today. If we drive from Florida to Oregon, we might take four days. It is one journey even if we stop for three nights. Further, we don't consider the stops as anything other than rests on the larger trek. A second option is that the distance of the journey took three days, even if there were extended periods of time at each stop. If we travel to Oregon, which is a four-day drive, but we stop for a week at each stop, it will take us a month to get those four days journey out of the way. Either is possible because no specific days are given after that in verse 11, and yet we're going to see stops recorded before we actually get to Paran in the verses and chapters ahead. Verse 33 continues, And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days journey. Some find a contradiction in these words. The holy objects were said to travel between the standard of Reuben and the standard of Ephraim. Remember that? Judah goes and then the camp breaks, I'm sorry, the sanctuary breaks down and then Reuben goes and then the most holy things are carried. Okay, so they say, well, that's contradiction because they say the ark's in the front and it's not with the most holy things. Okay, to resolve this, some say it means that the ark symbolically led the congregation as a general is said to do. Right? Even if he's in the middle or rear of the advancing army, he's said to be at the head of the army. However, there is no reason to assume that this is the case. It says the ark went before them. And that in no way contradicts that the other holy objects went with the tribes as indicated. Where the ark was, so was the pillar of cloud high above. It was a sign to all behind that the Lord was leading. What is interesting is that the Ark here is not called the Ark of the Testimony, which relates to what it contains, but it is rather now called the Ark of the Covenant of Jehovah because of its purpose and intent for the people of Israel. It is the Lord who goes before his people in covenant faithfulness, which is in accord with the covenant between them. In this, he goes forth first, verse 33 continues, to search out a resting place for them. A new word is introduced here, tour. It is a verb meaning to seek out, to spy, or investigate. It cannot be said that the Lord actively searched out a resting place, as if he didn't know where to go, but that he is leading the people. Their eyes on the cloud show them that the Lord is leading to the place searched out for them. Verse 34, and the cloud of the Lord was above them by day when they went out from the camp. In the poetry of the Psalms, the cloud is said to have covered all of the people. Opinions about what this means vary. Some see it as the cloud covering the entire congregation. 
Some see it as being above them visibly, but only above the ark, and so on. The two things which are absolutely certain is that, one, the cloud is a special, recognizable cloud known as Anan Yehovah, or the cloud of Yehovah, and that it was literally above them in some respect. The people would have no doubt that the Lord was with them as they journeyed. As we know from earlier, it had the appearance of a cloud during the day and that of fire by night. It was with them during the entire time of their journeys. It was the determining factor of when the people moved and how long they rested in any given location. When the Lord decided it was time to break down camp, that's what they would do. At that time, Moses had a special petition of the Lord. Verse 35, so it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. The words of Moses here are closely followed by David in the 68th Psalm. Here's what David wrote. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those also who hate him flee before him. Moses' words are an anticipatory look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The ark is, as we have seen, a picture of Christ, the embodiment of the law. In his death, he rested from his labors. In his resurrection, the enemies of the Lord are scattered, and those who hate him flee before him. In the physical petition by Moses for protection from human enemies, there is a picture of the spiritual realm and protection from the forces which work there. But there's much more than this. In Christ's resurrection, those who hated him and those who continue to hate him today are his own people, Israel. The curses of Leviticus 26 prophesy that they would be scattered by him, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. That occurred. And that has continued on for 2,000 years. It will continue until he returns to his place of rest, which was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah with these words. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. That is seen in Moses' words, which comprise our final verse of the day. Verse 36 finishes us up with, And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. The resting of the ark looks forward to the return of the Lord, but it looks more specifically of the return of the Lord to Israel. The Gentiles sought him while Israel rejected him. They even hated him. The Gentiles streamed to him. Israel was scattered and they fled. But someday, after the rapture of the church, there will be a change. The exact same phrase, Shuvah Yehovah, is translated as Restore Yehovah in Psalm 126. Instead of Return, Lord, it says Restore, Lord. There is a petition to restore the people of Israel from their captivity. As it reads, Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Thus, there is in this a double Entendre, a prophetic double entendre. It is a petition for the Lord to return to the many thousands of Israel, but it is first a petition to restore, O Lord, the many thousands of Israel. Only in their restoration will he return to them and sit in his place of rest. As the Lord scattered his enemies, meaning his own people, someday they will call out to him and he will restore them and he will return to them. Israel is leaving Sinai and is headed to Paran. Christ left the cross and he went to glory, to that place which is glorious. It is this which is seen in our verses today. This explains why Hobab was mentioned in this passage. 
It is a picture of the Gentiles seeking after the Lord and finding his rest, even when Israel failed to do so. Hobab was, and he remained, a Gentile. However, as we see in the Exodus 18 sermons, he is used as a type of Christ. His name means beloved. For those in Christ, they are, as he is, beloved. Paul's words to those in Rome explain this relationship. In Romans 9, while citing the prophet Hosea, and when discussing Israel's rejection of the Lord, which has gone on for 2,000 years, he says this about the Gentiles. I will call them my people who are not my people. Speaking of the Gentiles now being called his people. And her beloved, us, who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Moses' petition was for Hobab to be Israel's eyes, implying that they were blinded in need of him. What does it say about the Jews in the New Testament? Blinded in part. He refused and returned to his place. All explained in the Exodus 18 sermons. If you don't understand what's going on here, go back and watch that sermon and it'll make sense. Israel was left with only old covenant types to guide them. And they have been blinded on their journey because of it. Their only sure guide is what they have for the most part, rejected, which is the New Testament epistles which tell of Jesus Christ. It is, whether popularly accepted or not, the Gentiles who have held to the New Covenant and who have led the remnant of Israel during the movement of the Ark, meaning Jesus Christ, through history. While Israel's bodies have been scattered in the wilderness, the Gentiles have guided the process of understanding God's work in Christ and leading those few Jews who have been a faithful remnant also spoken of by Paul in Romans chapter 11. Someday that will change. The Lord will restore and the Lord will return to Israel. This is why the term mountain of the Lord is used. That is speaking of Jerusalem, where the Jews departed from in their exile. And it is in this exile that they journey for three days before reaching their destination. It is reflective of the words of Hosea, taking a day for a thousand years, which the Bible does several times. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. That has happened during our lifetime, the year that my wife was born, not to give away her age, but <laughs> that year they were restored. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight, a three days journey. The restoration is happening in our lifetime. The return cannot be far off. Moses' petition cuts like a sword, and yet it petitions for balm. It is what any faithful leader of the Lord's people should pray for. Scatter your enemies, O Lord. Make those who hate you flee before you, but at the same time, restore your people, O God, and return to them when they are restored. That is what we should pray for, and it is my last prayer every single night before I am done. Lord, I pray for Israel. I pray for Jerusalem, because only in their restoration is he coming back to this planet. He's coming back for us, and we're going up to him. He's not coming back physically by his own words until they say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's up to Israel. And if you've never taken the time to call on this wonderful Savior, who, listen, that cloud that takes them all the way through their wilderness wanderings. Now, you have to think of the symbolism. They are scattered in the wilderness for 40 years, right? They all die in the wilderness. Their bodies are scattered, just exactly what Moses is petitioning for. Scatter your enemies, all right? And they did. Well, that is the same picture of the Lord today guiding Israel. 
He's guiding them by the old covenant. Remember, they have the ark, which only pictures Jesus. That's what they're going by. They're going by the Old Testament pictures. But he is guiding them because he covenanted with them that he would. In Leviticus 26, I will never reject this people. They will be scattered. They will be destroyed. But I will not completely destroy them lest I break my covenant with them. Now, that's a misquote there. But you understand what's going on. Their bodies have been scattered in the wilderness of 2,000 years of history while the Gentiles have been coming to him. Does everybody see the correlation of what's going on here? He left the cross. He went to glory in heaven. We are following him. We are in our Paran. They are not. They are looking for it right now. But they are on their way back to him. They're in the land just as the Lord promised they would be and they will call on him sadly after two-thirds of them are extinguished by the nations of the world. But it is coming. And he will return to them when they are in their greatest need. They will call out to him and say, we have been wrong. Come, restore us. And that's what we should be praying for right now. If you've never called on Jesus Christ, now is the time. I don't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile. You are not going to see the glory of God in heaven, the restored paradise that we lost all that time ago, unless you go through Jesus Christ. He is what is pictured in every single passage that we have gone through time and time and time and time again. Everywhere in this book, it points to him and what he is doing. And it points to one other thing about him, his immense love for the people of the world. His grace, his mercy at not extinguishing us. He saved eight through grace and they repopulated the planet. He destroyed Israel, but he has kept them alive even in their destruction. We deserve complete judgment in this church today because of the perversion which is going on in pulpits and in congregations all over the world, and yet he has not destroyed us. And the funny thing is, guess what? He warned them right there in the seven letters to the seven churches. He gave them the warnings and were just failing to pay heed. And yet in those warnings, there's grace and there's mercy because he says, if you just obey me, these things won't come on you. You have to come through Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. He paid the sin debt completely. He loves you enough to do this. Please call on Jesus. Receive him. Acknowledge what you've done wrong, and he will forgive you. And you will never again from that moment have your sin imputed to you. Ever again. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19. God is no longer imputing our sins to us. Or as some translations say, he's no longer counting our sins against us. We are not under law. Law is what imputes sin. If there's no law, you can't be imputed sin. I can drive home today, and if there's no speed limit, I can drive as fast as I want, and nobody can do anything. But as soon as that crummy sign goes up and I go over that speed limit, I get a penalty because I violated the law. Law brings about the sin. We have it in us already, but it's not imputed without the law. Okay? Come to Jesus Christ. Call on him. Be reconciled to him. What a great and wonderful Lord we serve. I have a closing verse for you from Romans 11. It's verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinions, you Gentiles, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a day, which you were talking about at the beginning of the uh, service today, there's a day when the last Gentile is going to be called. And when that happens, it's going to be instantaneous. Instantaneous, we are going to be gone. We don't know when that's going to happen. It may be today. It may be another hundred years. We don't know. I don't think it's going to be a hundred years because Israel's back and he's got to fulfill the plan for them. But it's going to be soon. And when that final Gentile is in there, all of his attention is going to go to Israel. All of it. That doesn't mean that Gentiles won't be saved, but his attention is going to be on Israel. All right. Just like now it's on the church, but 
Israelis are saved, Jews are saved. Everybody see that? It's not, he's not going to reject the Gentiles, but his attention, his focus is back on them. Next week is Numbers 11, 1 through 15. I had to make something rhyme. Through his distress to the Lord, he will get his word in. It's entitled Moses' Heavy Burden, our 20th number sermon. I had to take two words and put them together. Anyway, Moses' Heavy Burden. Okay, Israel was being led by the ark to search out a resting place for them. That was verse 33, right? What is that resting place in reality? Jesus, you got one right. And what book of the Bible is this explicitly stated? Explicitly. Well, it's everywhere, but it's explicitly stated in one book of the Bible. I'll give you a hint. It begins with H and ends with Hebrews. Anybody? Yes, Hebrews. Okay, bonus. What verse in that book is that recorded? Burke. Burke isn't here right now. Sorry, you have to just... <laughs> Hebrews 4, verse 3. I've given this to you so many times, I'm embarrassed for all of you. Now we who believe do enter that rest. When we believe, we enter the rest. The ark is only a picture of Christ. It's not Christ, right? They were looking for the shadow. We have the substance. And when you get the substance, guess what? You get the shadow too. Hebrews 4, 3. Now we who believe do enter that rest. Good. You got, you got it. Good job. You got the, that's all right. One out of three is okay. Isn't that a song? One out of three ain't bad. Oh, it's not, but hey, it was close. All right. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you're lost in a desert wandering aimlessly like Israel for the past 2,000 years, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Poem, it'll go quickly, just like the sermon did, from Sinai to Paran. Now it came to pass on the 20th day, on the second month in the second year, so we see that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys. Yes, they moved on. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they started out for the first time, as we now understand, according to the command of the Lord by Moses' hand. The standard of the camp of the children of Judah set out first, but not in a taxi cab. According to their armies, over their army was Nashon, the son of Aminadab. Over the army, I told you, that guy is hard to find a rhyme. The last one was making animals in a lab. Well, now it's a taxi cab. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Issachar was Nathanael, the son of Zuar. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Halon. Then the tabernacle was taken down, and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari set out, carrying the tabernacle, praising the Lord as they went, no doubt. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set out according to their armies for sure. Over their army was Elitzor, the son of Shedeor. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Simeon, by and by, was Shalumiel, the son of Zur Shaddai. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Gad, so the record does tell, was Eliasaph, the son of Deuel. Then the Kohathites carrying the holy things set out. The tabernacle would be prepared for their arrival, no doubt. And the standard of the camp of the children of Ephraim set out according to their armies, looking good. Over their army was Elishama, the son of Amihud. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Manasseh, for sure, was Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Benjamin, as we see, was Abidan, the son of Gideoni. Then the standard of the camp of the children of Dan, the rear guard of all the camps, by and by, set out according to their armies. Over their army was Ahietzer, the son of Amishadai. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Asher, 
as they moved on was Pagiel, the son of Akron. And over the army of the tribe of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Anan, so we see. Thus was the order of the march of the children of Israel, as we see, according to their armies when they began their journey. Now Moses said to Hovah, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law too, we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. And he said to him, I will not go, please understand, but I will depart to my own relatives and to my own land. So Moses said, please do not leave, inasmuch as you know, yes, it is to you no surprise how we are to camp in the wilderness, and you can be our eyes. And it shall be if you go with us, indeed, it shall be that whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. This is my guarantee. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days as it came about. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days journey, a resting place for them to search out. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day, his approval stamp, when they went out from the camp. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah. And amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are guiding us even to the land of promise. Every step of the way, we think we're lost. We think we're in a wilderness. We can't control the situations around us. Loved ones die. We lose our finances. Our house burns down. There's a tornado that destroys everything. Whatever it is, Lord, you are still there leading us to the land of promise. And that is true in life or in death. If we're alive, we're heading to the land of promise. And if we're gone, we are heading to the land of promise. It's a guarantee because of the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we thank you for that marvelous work. Then, Lord, we pray that it will be affected in many of your people, Israel, the Jewish people today, that many hearts will turn to you before the time of the Gentiles ends and the time of tribulation upon that sad nation comes. But we know even that will be leading them as a nation to the land of promise. And it's coming soon. We hope that you'll be merciful even in the times of trouble. We pray this, that you will be glorified and exalted in them and that they will be relieved and comforted in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.